At the very least, you can sit in the front row, you know? So, uh, okay, here's what we're doing. All summer long, we're doing a kind of a series here on essentially foundational realities. We just kind of want to lay this basic kind of grid. Some of this, of course, is review. But one thing I've, I've noticed when I've taught kind of foundational things is there's always gaps in our knowledge. None of us grew up with some kind of perfect kind of discipleship curriculum. And so there's just kind of holes in the stuff. And so as we lay this foundation, some of the stuff will be reviewed to you. And you're like, ah, yes, I've heard that. Or I know that. I could teach that class. But sometimes there'll be things you're like, well, I've never thought of it quite like that. Here's what we've done. We asked the question, what is the gospel? which is about as foundational as it gets for Christianity. Um, but I think that probably for many of you, it's a little bit surprising to hear that the essence of the gospel is that Jesus became king, right? And there's all kinds of implications for that. We've talked about where we find assurance of salvation. What is the basis that we can really rest, not fearful about what the future holds, but we, can, we have no cause to fear death. We might fear legitimately the process of dying, but the result of death for a believer, there's no cause for fear. We can, we can rest in the assurance of his love and his salvation. We talked about confession, that confession is the key that kind of unlocks the things that grind up a relationship. We talked about the spirit-filled life. So this is, I think, maybe the, great, maybe the greatest secret of the Christian life that ought not be a secret, that he lives in us to move us, to enable us to fulfill his purposes, that we are not rowboats, where the, where the impetus is to pull harder, to row more, but we're sailboats, right? Our job is to yield more. We talked about how we spend daily time in the Word and some strategies for that. We talked about obedience. We looked at Titus 1, that the Jesus is Lord, we experience Him as Savior. And says the fact that He is our Savior that compels the obedience, which is crucial to our walk with Him. And then last week, I wasn't here, I was in California, but Bob, who is somewhere, there he is. Bob spent some time with you guys talking about the, basically the difference between justification and sanctification that we really are justified, all righteousness credited to us. That was the line that kind of like runs across the top. It's like, bam, at a moment in time, we have an imputed foreign gifted righteousness, but then over time we grow into it. He sanctifies us. Today, I want to talk about uh, the fact that the gospel has both vertical and horizontal implications. And I'll show you what I mean when, when, I, when we do that. Um, generally... Generally speaking, when we talk about the gospel, I think probably for most of us in this particular kind of tribe that we're a part of, um, we tend to think of the gospel's vertical implications, right? Vertical meaning things that impact our relationship with God, me, you know, man to God, God to me. And so we'll talk about things like the fact, the truth, it's beautiful, wonderful, that Jesus died to reconcile us to the Father and praise his name. We'll talk about as we mentioned, this assurance that we can have that we are saved from his wrath, that we need not fear his anger or judgment, we confess our sins to him. And when we do, the forg we experience his forgiveness, right? Those are all very vertically oriented between me and God. The problem that exists here, he's going to jump in and he's going to fix and he's offered a solution in Christ for that. But... Consider, and just think about this, every aspect that I just mentioned that's, that we think of in this vertical way also has a horizontal aspect as well, okay? So we talk about reconciliation, that God has reconciled us to the Father, not counting our sins against us. What's the horizontal um, version of that, the horizontal implication of that? He reconciled. He reconciled. Go ahead, Catherine. Yeah, so we're reconciled to the Father. If your brother offends you, then go to your brother and be reconciled. 
That's, that, that's, that's exactly right. That we, when we, if you talk about Christian reconciliation, you might have like a sense of reconciliation means vertical reconciliation. But, 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 and you think chiefly in the horizontal. Okay, we're going to talk about that because some of us might chiefly think in one direction or the other. But he is reconciling us not just to himself, but also to he, each other, right? Okay, so think about this. Um, confession. We think of confession. We confess our sins to God. What is the, what's the horizontalness of our confession? Right? So where? Can you, can you do that? Can you chapter and verse that for me? Or can you quote scripture on this claim? James something. James something, right? Yeah, that's right. Right? James, how does it go? 560. Yeah, you're, the, you're a Bible memory guy, Herrick. Do you remember what, how, what does James say about that? I, I think it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be forgiven. So that you may be close. Healed, so that you may be healed, right? So, so confess your sins to one another, so that we may, so that you may be healed. Now, this is interesting because as Protestants, we tend to hear like you know the Catholics kind of confess in the horizontal. Like you know what, we don't need to do any of that horizontal confession. We just go, we just talk straight to the Father. And it's true that we don't need a mediator between us and the Father. Jesus is our mediator, but it is not true that we are not to confess our sins horizontally. Confess your sins to one another, so that you may be healed. All right. So reconciliation has a horizontal. Confession and forgiveness has a horizontal. Um, what else? What else did I just mention here? Uh, reconcil- oh, assurance. Okay. So we have, we have assurance that we can be saved from God's wrath. Where, what's the horizontal implication of assurance? How does that one play out? That might be maybe a little bit less obvious. If, Go for it, Catherine. Something about if we something, we have... It was fleeted away. Okay, but there's something in there that I think you're chasing down. What, what, what's the heart? Yeah, Tommy? I was thinking uh, in line with, uh, like, forgiveness for one another. If our sins, uh, if we're assured that, that God's not holding them against us, then our neighbors are the same. How can we hold them against us? Okay, great. So in the, in the same way, there's all these things that whatever is true vertically, there's always going to be this ref- reflection that plays us out horizontally. We forgive because he forgave us. We show grace to others because he's shown grace to us. We give to others because he has given to us. So there's always going to be this... It comes to us, the gospel always comes to us on its way to somebody else. And all of those implications, all those benefits, all those blessings that we get, they're not just for us, but they're, they're also for others. Abso- absolutely true. Okay, Catherine? It might be First John, I don't know. But if you have something about, if you have Jesus in your heart, if you confess him, you have fellowship with one another. Yes, okay, so that, that is First John, chapter 1. And that, that's really, John is, we when we talk about James says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. In the way that First John frames it is that if we will walk in the light, which is, a, which is terminology for confessing our sins, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, right? And so all of these, it's, it, there's always both. I, would, I think of the assurance chiefly in, in this sense that we, as far as the horizontal implica- implication of assurance, is that one of the primary bases of our assurance, how do I know that I'm really in him? Like, what puts my heart at rest in his presence when my heart condemns me? When I'm like, ah, I must not be a Christian because no Christian would do that. John says, hang on, hang on, hang on, slow down, look. And do you not see the transforming effect of your relationships? Do you not, in fact, actually love people differently than you used to? And so it's not just that we grant assurance to others, but the, the basis, one of the basis of my bases, one of the bases of my assurance, vertical, is the reality of horizontal relationships that have been transformed, okay? Which is to say, you can't, we try to separate them. It's interesting, isn't it? Right? It's the shape of a cross. 
There's a vertical aspect to our gospel and a horizontal aspect to our gospel. And you got to have both. Kelly Sue? Uh, I was just going to say Hebrews 10 blends the vertical and the horizontal, sure. Okay, say it loud. Hebrews 10, what are you, tell me what you're thinking of. 22 says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's the vertical. But he goes on to say, let us hold unswervingly the hope we profess for he promises faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on the love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more just approaching. I got to believe that some of that encouragement yes. while meeting together is that assurance We'll confirm that assurance. Amen. Okay, so probably, I'm going to say this again, and then Robin, you can go because you probably couldn't hear Kelly. So Kelly is saying that, and this is we're going to we're going to look at several of these instances, but over and over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, we get the vertical and the horizontal come together. So Hebrews 10 is yet another, and we're going to look at several, but Hebrews 10 very clearly describes this vertical relationship we have with the Lord, and then right on the heels of it, hang on, I'm going to choke on this. <clears throat> It turns into, and therefore, spur one another on to love and good deeds. The vertical and the horizontal, listen, this is important, they always go together. And yet, despite the fact that they always go together biblically, we have generally divided them in half. It's too much. We can't do it all. And so we've kind of divided Christianity into those that see Christianity as chiefly a vertical phenomena. It's about eternal things with God. And then other, and then they, that 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 group is going to tend to be a little bit dismissive of the horizontal. And then we've got a crowd that makes it all about the horizontal, but they're not so much focused on the, the vertical. And this, is, this division has played out for a long, long time. Gen, this, and it's, you know, it's a little iffy, but generally, the more conservative you are theologically, the more vertical you are, and the less interested and less engaged you are in the horizontal. And the more liberal you are, the more horizontal you are, and the less the less you're going to be vertical. We would, we would see like evangelical is going to be more vertical, less horizontal. Mainline churches, more horizontal, less vertical. But the reality is the biblical picture is it's, it's both, right? And we're going to see this all, over and over again. So Robin, uh, a couple of hands. Robin, did you want to jump on? Part of what I was raising my hand about is to have you repeat what she said. Oh. I think that our vertical relationship overflows towards the horizontal because of our relationship with Christ and trying to be more like That's absolutely true. That the vertical and the horizontal are both absolutely necessary, but the vertical comes first in the sequence, right? We love we love others because he first loved us. So this is the fuel source, but that fuel source has got to play out in the horizontal. And we see this, I mean it's oh you just it's every once you see it, you're gonna you're gonna see it everywhere. Steve, did you want to say something? Remember that scripture that Jesus was sharing with his disciples before he left. One of the things he says is, "They shall know you by your love for one another." Very good. You know how 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 will people even know we're different if we don't love each other? Yeah. You know, there's so many barriers that try to separate us. You won't become right, but then languages and all of those things. But it's something with that love of Jesus. When we come together, it makes no difference if you never know anybody. It's like when you it's that kindred spirit. The love of Jesus that we share Amen. Amen. Do I need to repeat Steve or did you catch him? His voice carries, right? Okay. That's good. Joyce?
Amen. And so, so again, this is, you guys are making the case for me that this notion of verticality and horizontality, and I just made those up. Um, the, we're not making, I made up that word, but we're not making this, con- it's everywhere. It's just, it's just absolutely everywhere. And so it's, it might be useful for you to check in your own life, where have you reduced the cross shape of the gospel to a vertical pole? Where have you reduced the cross shape of the, ver- of the gospel to a horizontal pole? It's both. It's always got to be both. I want, we'll, we'll kind of walk through and unpack that. So let's, let's take a look at a couple more people. Rocks. I don't want to take too much time because I want you to get to the real meat and potatoes. But one thing, Steve, that you said in terms of us and in terms of a horizontal relationship, I think it's, it's easy for us to show, or it's easier, not easy, easier for us to show that to other Christians. What I would say is not just how we love one another as Christians, but equally as important and probably more important how the world sees us, how we love those that are non-Christians. Amen. Amen. And that's, that's largely behind there. The, the, the world will know that you are mine, right, by the way you love each other. And what we want there to be, and this is, wouldn't this be amazing if people were like longing to get into the Christian community because they realize, man, whatever you have here is better than what we have out here, right? We, are, we, we spent, I don't know, the entire spring talking about how strange we are supposed to be, right? Remember that the whole thing of First Peter is, y'all just freaks, you're just weird, but what's supposed to be weird about us is stuff like that, Roxanne. That we are so patient in unjust suffering. We are so quick to love people that don't deserve to be loved. Not just inside our own little house, but in the world around. That's what blows people's minds. If we, and that, so, that, so we say that it is our vertical, check this out, the vertical experience that we have with Jesus is what fuels the horizontal. But for those that are outside the kingdom, it's the exact opposite. Right? It is their experience of our horizontal love that draws them into the vertical relationship with the Father. Right? you got to have both. Okay, so let's, let's just kind of prove. You already didn't believe it, apparently, but let's prove the point. Do you guys remember when Jesus was asked for one commandment? Jesus, what is the greatest? That's one, singular. What's the greatest commandment? Do you guys know where that is? Okay. Well. Right. Well, so, so, right. So, so, <laughs> Right, right. So it's Matthew 22. So take a look at it. It's Matthew 22. He's asked for one. What's the greatest commandment? And the answer is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he could have stopped right there, except that he can't stop right there. That's the vertical. That's the answer to the question. But before the guy can go on, he's like, but, but, hang. but there's a second one. I cannot, I can't answer your question about the single greatest commandment you got to give me space to give you two. And the second is like it. What is that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right, it's Matthew 22. That reality right there, he's asked for one, but he gives two. And that's because you cannot reduce the gospel to one, although sometimes we try. It never works if it's vertical only. It has to be vertical, and it has to be horizontal. But... The vertical comes first, right? John? And in both cases, uh, Jesus is quoting the law of Moses. That's right. That's right. And here's what's so interesting. So you say he's quoting the law of Moses. When, when that guy, when, when, when the Pharisee asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? This is, this is a weird little thing. What's the greatest commandment? What do you think he was, he was supposed to draw from in his answer? The, the Ten Commandments, right? Doesn't that, that question kind of begets, that question 
Not the gets. That question suggests he's asking, which of the Ten Commandments is the greatest? And he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not actually in the Ten Commandments. Now, it's kind of implied in the first couple, but he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, right? This is the Shema. If you guys know, this is great. Shema, it's the Shema. It's your, it's your, your passage right there. Um, and, and then the second one, where's the second one from? Do you know? Love, love your neighbor as yourself? It is. It's like Leviticus. What? Where did that come out of, right? And so it's so fascinating. When Jesus answers the question, the, the Ten Commandments really is the summary of the law. But to make this as clear and as pointed and as exact as he can, Jesus actually goes to a different source. He goes to Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus. I think it's 18. I might be mistaken about that. But, and so as he, as, he, as he recaps it, this is the thing. It is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. As I said, sometimes we'll divide these things up, do one or the other, but we don't get to do one or the other. Stephen Alexander is sitting over here. We got a bunch of Blue Ridge fellows that live in this, uh, what do we even call it? They live in the box of the building. They live in this uh, apartment that, that Stephen manages. He brings in international um, high school students on a kind of a foreign exchange-ish kind of program. And our fellows uh, live there and serve, some of our fellows live there and serve basically as, as resident advisors. And it was, was it not was it not so great this year? It was so much fun. And one of the things that made it fun was it, is that they always got the vowel wrong. Is it Len or Lynn or what's his name? Yeah. Len. Len. Some, it's like L something N. And, and he had, he, so he's an uh, unbelieving high school kid living in this house. Blendy here was one of them. Lived, lived in the house of these guys. And it was just so fun to hear stories week after week of this kid who's kind of a bit of a nut. Is that fair? He's a strange kid. <laughs> But his, his experience of the fellows was, was so rich, not because they were so theologically astute, although they are, but because they loved him, right? It was the horizontal that gave way for the vertical in his life. And they had countless opportunities that they seized to share the gospel with these kids, to love them, to stay up late, to uh, proofread their papers, Emily, endlessly proofread their papers, right? Um, which shows love to a high school kid who's trying to get in, or not papers, is college entrance as a, essays, whatever it is, right? All these things, right? And so the act of staying up late to love somebody creates opportunities. That's what Jesus is talking about. We love God. We love our neighbors. It's vertical. It's horizontal. It's both, okay? Now, let me show you one that's maybe a little bit less obvious, where we maybe, I think, in our culture, are a little more guilty of, of the single, of single issuing this. Go to Ephesians 2, okay? If you know Ephesians 2... Um, you prob if I say, in fact, when I say Ephesians 2, can you quote Ephesians 2? Is there anything in there that's meaningful to you? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, very good. So you give me verses 8 and 9. Can you do the whole thing? Yeah. <laughs> okay, if you don't want to? No, I can't. So, so I'll, do it, I'll do it for the mic then, but it's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Uh, for you are dead in the trespasses. Oh, we're starting at verse 1. Yeah. Okay, let's go. Let's go big. <laughs> <laughs> for you are dead in the trespasses she once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, some in whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in God. Let's actually pause there, okay? <laughs> so that was great. Very good. All right. Well done, Lily. So this passage here, Ephesians 2, is well-known, well-loved, because it's a fantastic summary of the gospel, right? Now, that, that, the part that you might, might know best of all is verses 8 and 9. For by grace, this shows up in like, you know, evangelistic tracts all the time. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, <clears throat> not a result of works that no one should boast, right? We know this is beautiful and it's great. Now, if I didn't interrupt Lily, she might have continued to go on and ruined my illustration, so I had to stop her. But here's, here's what happens. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9 is well known. Sometimes we'll make it all the way to verse 10. On rare occasions, we might make it to verse 11. Uh, but usually we stop right here. We'll stop at 9 or we'll stop at 10. And that's all fantastic. It's wonderful and it's great to memorize it, to hide that in your heart. Amen. Do that. It's all vertical. We tend to be less conscious of the second half of Ephesians 2. And you want to guess what the second half of Ephesians 2 is all about? Horizontal. It's all about the horizontal. Listen to this. This, is, this will not be, uh, you might have heard this, but it won't be as familiar. Here's how it goes from 11 on. He says, therefore, okay, there's a direct implication. The vertical matters horizontally. Therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He's creating these two categories. He's not creating, he's recognizing there's the Jews and the Gentiles. This is horizontal. There's a relational th thing. Think ethnic. Think racist. Think like there's this two different clubs, two different parties. There's some are here and some are there, and they're separate from each other. You're, you're excluded from citizenship. You're not part of this community. You're not part of this family. You're other. You're them. You're Gentile dogs. Okay? And he says, but look what happens in verse 14. For he himself, this is Jesus, of course, is our peace, who has made the two one. That two is not you and God. That two is Jew and Gentile. This is horizontal. He's made the two one. He's destroyed the barrier. Once again, this is not a barrier between God and man. This is a barrier between man and man. It's a dividing wall of hostility. It's a wall that divides people from other people. And what he's done here in verse 15 is he abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose, think about this, this is, this is stunning theology. His purpose on the cross, his purpose, what he was doing through his death, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. Again, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, peace to you who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, 
members of God's household. You hear, this is the whole thing. The front, the front half of Ephesians 2 is vertical, 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 vertical. The second half, horizontal, horizontal, horizontal. This enmity that exists between people in this particular moment, it's, it's Jew and Gentile, right? That's what's going on right here. But in, you know, in some other part of the world at another time, it's you know, Chinese and Japanese. At some other part of, part of the world at another time, it's the Hutus and the Tutsis. At some other part of the world, it's African Americans and Caucasian Americans. At some other part of time, you, you get it? Endlessly, we love to divide ourselves into groups. And what we should see here is not just the theological implication, but the relational implication. That God is uniting a people because there's a horizontalness to the gospel necessarily. It's part of his purpose on the cross. Make sense? Yes. Okay, this is super key. This is absolutely crucial. Let me do, let me do two more. We've got a little bit of time. Well, let me pause. Is that any questions about that or interactions with the Ephesians piece? We see it in Matthew, whatever that was, 22. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2. We see it in Hebrews 10. You with me? Okay, how about this? What's Galatians about? Who give me, can you give me a high-level summary of Galatians? Give it to me, Nick. Don't add anything to the gospel. Okay, good. What were they adding to the gospel? Circumcision. Okay, so how does how does how did this play out? What was the what was the story behind the letter? Uh, there was a group of people who were suggesting that in order to be a real Christian, you needed to be circumcised. Okay, and so why wouldn't you be circumcised already? Because if you you were a Gentile. You're a Gentile. That's right. Paul is making the argument that the Gentile believers who were converting to Christianity That's right. So you got a, you have a Jewish, you, the, the church begins the Jewish community, right? Jesus is Jewish. The disciples are Jewish. Paul is Jewish. It's a Jewish phenomenon. And then pretty quickly, they realize, oh my goodness, we're going to let all of these like Europeans in. All of these, you know, and as the gospel spreads, it's not just the Europeans, but it's the South Americans and it's the, you know, it's the Indians and it's the Africans. It's, it's, we're letting anybody in. It's just outrageous, right? Anybody gets to come into this thing. And when that happens, there's a huge question of like, okay, wait a minute. You're telling me we're going to let these Greeks, we're going to let these Romans come into our party? Like, well, what are the rules? Like, they clearly have to be circumcised, right? I mean, it's fine if they come in, but they better start acting like us, <laughs> right? They better start eating like us. They should probably sing the songs that we sing. They should, I mean, they can come as long as they pretend to be us, then maybe we'll tolerate that, okay? This is what's going on. And in, in Galatia, it was a, Galatia's not a city, by the way, it's a region. And it, throughout Galatia, um, this was not, information was not being well received. Go, go to Galatians chapter 2, and I want you to see this. But then, well, well, we'll do a couple things here. Go to Galatians 2. And this is a pretty big deal to Paul. He's like, Galatia, every letter has, you know, gives us different insights, not just into the Lord, but into Paul himself, because he's his real personality. This is by far his angriest letter. He is like, he gets so ticked, he's mad at them because they, they're advocating for circumcision. And he's like, listen, if, you want, if you're so into like cutting off foreskins, then just go the entire way and cut the whole thing off. This is literally what he says, okay? He's really exercised about this. You need to say that. <laughs> it's the word of God. All right? So in, listen to the heat behind this. Galatians 2.11. <laughs> 2.11, here's what he says. When Peter came to Antioch, 
I opposed him to his face. Peter, good night. I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is like the nicest guy in the New Testament. This is like stunning news, okay? Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth know, and not Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Okay? Now here, here's what, there's so much I could say about this. Is Peter, is Paul making a horizontal claim or a vertical claim here? What is he doing? What is the basis of his argument? Um, the basis is Okay, basis is vertical. What am I hearing back here? Faith. Okay, so is that, is, is that a theological issue or like an anthropological issue? Okay, a kind of, okay it's going to have both. So here's what, this is, this is what I want you, I'm glad you guys are all like, um, I don't, I don't know. Okay, this is what I'm looking for. Catherine? Isn't he saying that the horizontal could interfere with the vertical? Um, I think, well, it, it's, certainly it's absolutely the case that both are being implicated here. Here, let, let me ask you this. Okay, John. The, his big basis is uh, that we're saved by uh, grace and faith alone, and we don't have works to our works are not saves. Yes. Okay. And so, would you categorize that as a theological vertical issue or a horizontal relational issue? Vertical. Okay, so here's here's the thing. I would have I would have answered this question without blinking, vertical, for 25 years, for a long, long time. Galatian, the Galatian controversy is: Are we saved by faith alone or by faith plus works? This is a theological question. This is a vertical question, and this would have been very, very easy for me to answer, and I would have gotten it wrong. Okay. It took a friend of mine who is not white, who's Indian, who is brilliant and very, very thoughtful about all things about race and ethnicity. Dear friend of mine, his name is Proto Matakari, and I worked with him when I was at Princeton University, and he's just super smart and could see things that I didn't see because he had a different experience. He's like, well, Tim, did you ever notice that this entire thing is playing out along ethnic lines? It's not, a th- it's not merely, it is theological, but it is not merely theological. It is also ethnic. It is also relational because what's going on, what, what Paul is so exercised about is that, look, look back to verse 12. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. There used to be a relational connection there. But when they arrived, he began to draw back from actual human beings and separate, him some, separate himself from the Gentiles, the real people, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And for whatever reason, the context of where I, where I was you know, trained in this, I saw it purely as a theological phenomenon. Galatians defends faith through grace alone, not faith plus works. And it's true. 
But it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that this vertical demand has horizontal implications. And when Paul sees the horizontal implications, he says, you are not acting in line with the gospel. The gospel has, has, has unavoidable horizontal implications. Right? So if you are like me and you grew up, what's Galatians about? It's about this theological concept that we're saved by faith alone, not faith plus works. That's true. But that's, that's the first half of Ephesians 2. You've got to continue on to the second half. There are relational implications to the gospel. Yeah. Well, thinking about what you said, um, understanding the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, then that affects or should affect our relationship with everybody. With everybody around us. To me, it is both. And that's exactly right. Is that, is that what's going on in Galatians is really a both and. It is vertical and horizontal, just like Ephesians 2, just like Hebrews 10, just like Matthew 22. It's vertical and horizontal both. But for some reason, we, we, might be, we might read it in a filtered way, and we only see half of the story. But it's always been there. Sometimes we need somebody that's outside of ourselves to point, point us to it and say, hey, did you ever notice that both aspects are, are, in, are in view here? Right? Make sense? Okay. Uh, let's do at least one more. You guys good on Galatians? You got Ephesians? You got Galatians? You got Matthew? Okay, here's one more. And somebody mentioned this, and I forget who it was. Somebody mentioned communion. Who talked about communion a minute ago? Was you? Yeah, Joyce. Okay. So, Joyce, what would you say, uh, do you, and it's fine if you don't, I don't mean to put you on spot, but where would you go to get your primary teaching on communion in the Bible? Any, any, any passages come to mind as being like central texts for this? John 6 and 1 Corinthians 11. These are the right answers, so I will put you on the spot over and over again if you're going to keep doing that. Okay, so, so let's, go to, let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to see this. I've talked about this some, but this is one of those things that like, is surprisingly unknown. In Ephesians, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 11 is, I would say, Paul's clearest exposition of what's going on in communion. What is it about? In fact, when you, what you hear us recite every, every Sunday is, is basically coming out of 1 Corinthians 11. This, you know, we're bringing a little bit of Hebrews in, um, but for the most part, this is, our, this is our key text that most churches, Anglican and otherwise, use to explain, the, explain what's happening. Uh, let's pick it up right... In fact, I'll do this. This will sound familiar. Let's, let's start on verse 23. All right? Paul says this, What I received from the Lord, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup, and here's what I want you to hear, verse, verse 29. So come back to me. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay? That verse 29 I think is broadly misunderstood, misapplied, often misquoted even. And it is deeply relevant to the conversation we're having right now. Here it is again. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. The key phrase that I think is often misunderstood is that center line without recognizing the body of the Lord. 
What does a Catholic think that phrase means? Without recognizing the body of the Lord. Body of the Lord instead of the body of Christ. So a Catholic is going to read that, and they're going to see that this, what, what we're saying here is that this wafer, these carbohydrates have turned into protein, right? If you don't get that, if you don't understand that the bread became flesh, that this is his body, it doesn't represent his body, but it is his body, then you're in a bad place. It's why they won't serve communion to Protestants because they're like, y'all don't get this and we're not gonna like heap judgment on you because you don't understand what, what they call transubstantiation. The substance of the bread has been transformed into flesh, okay? And a lot of Protestants will look at that and be like, that's not what that means. And then we replace it with what we think it means. And then we get it wrong too, okay? What's the typical Protestant understanding of what that means? Yeah, so Anglicans don't really, Lutherans believe in consubstantiation. Anglicans actually stop short of that. But there is a sense of, well, we, okay, we, we won't do that right now. But, <laughs> but, but Anglicans take, make a big deal out of it. And we wouldn't say that the, meat, that the carbohydrates become protein, but we would say that Jesus is present, is real, real presence. He's actually present here in the thing. And so there's, it's, there's a continuum of transubstantiation to a cons, whatever, just don't, don't worry about it. All the way to like a, a Baptist view of, that's just merely more m memorial. But whatever it is, a Protestant's going to say, listen, this is a big deal. And if you don't understand that what you're about to do is to eat bread that at the very least represents or in some sense um, embodies the presence of Jesus, then like, don't do that. Don't do that. That's a bad thing. In fact, if you got in a fight with your wife last night, you probably don't want to be taking communion right now. And we have a very, there's often a very severe sense of fencing the table. They're both wrong. They're both wrong. Okay? Those things are lovely. It's great and fine. But the body that is in view here in verse 29 ain't the bread and it ain't Jesus. It's y'all. It is the body. It is the gathered community. Okay? That communion is meant to be, wait for it, vertical and horizontal. But we tend to be largely unaware of the horizontal implications even of this meal. We take a very vertical nature. Here, here, let, me, let me make my quick point, quick proof. Go through this passage I just read and notice how often Paul says both the bread and the wine, both the body and the blood. Watch how doubly he is throughout the whole thing. Pick it up in verse 23. Watch the doubles. For what I received from the Lord, what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, that's half, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This perfectly corresponds to, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this when you drink it in remembrance of me. You have perfect parallelism, bread and wine, body and blood. Okay? Then he's going to say in verse 25. No, 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 verse, verse 26. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, both, right? Verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup, both, is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood, both. Verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread, drinks the cup, both. And then in verse 29, he's going to do both twice. He's going to say anyone who eats and drinks without something, eats and drinks judgment. Both, 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 both. But that's something in the middle Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body, he does not say without recognizing the body and the blood. 
He simply says, without recon- I'm not going to call on anybody yet. Gotta, I've got to finish this. Without recognizing the body. Do you see that? It's, it's body, blood, body, blood, body, blood, body, blood, bread cup, bread cup, bread cup. And then right in the middle of it, there's body all by itself. My contention to you is that that body is not talking about the bread. If it was, he would have mentioned the blood. If it was, the, if it was bread, it would, go with, it would go with wine. Okay. Not only that, but do you guys know what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about? The whole passage? What is it, Blendy? The body of the church. The body. Over and over. He's going to say body, 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 over and over and over again. Because we are his body. Right? Next. Do you know what the rebuke is in 1 Corinthians 11? What they were screwing up? Social, the rich, the poor. Yes. Go back, go back to the beginning of it. Go to verse 17. This is the complaint. This is what they're getting wrong. Verse 17. And the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Okay? If you're saying in verse 20, when, listen to this. Listen to how strident this is. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Why not? Look at what he says. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And then he begins the words that we know. He says, you're screwing up the horizontal so bad that the vertical ceases to be. The communion with the Lord, that meal that you may have always thought of as a vertical component, it has a horizontal component. And if you blow the horizontal, it ceases to be the vertical. You with me? Okay, one more, one more piece of evidence. Go back to chapter 10. So right, right after it, it's all about the body. The context is about the gathered community. In chapter 10, he says this. He says, uh, verse 16 is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. And listen to this, verse 17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. My guess would be, that just like we've tended to read Ephesians 2 and we stop at the halfway point and we think of it as vertical, just like we might read Galatians and see it merely through a theological lens about justification by faith alone, we probably partake in communion in a way that we recognize this is communion with the Lord, but we're generally speaking pretty unaware of the horizontal aspect of this. It is a relationship with other human beings, others in the body of Christ. And the meal is meant to celebrate both. And to such an extent that if it doesn't celebrate both, it doesn't celebrate either. That's the claim that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 11. Make sense? The gospel is vertical. The gospel is horizontal. You don't get one without the other. Catherine. Um, This really helps. Um, There have been times, you know, when the scriptures that say, um, if you have something against someone, or if someone has something against you, before you bring your offering to the offering, go to your brother. Be reconciled. Both people have a responsibility. If, if you've offended somebody, it's your responsibility to go. But if they've offended you, you also have responsibility. 
That's right. And so do they. And so there were times when I was going to go to communion and I realized I had something against somebody. And I, and I just, I guess I just, that scripture spoke to me very loudly about communion because I had to get up out of my seat and go find that person and be reconciled and then I could go to communion. That's it. There were times when I did not even go because I knew that I had something against them. Amen. And that's exactly right. That the, 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 the horizontal in some way even constrains the vertical. That's what Paul is saying and that's what you are living out. This really helps. Yeah. This is, this is how it works. Now, one thing I'll just mention briefly and then I'll jump to Robin and then we got to get out of here is... Um, if you want to experience communion in a richer way than maybe you ever have before, I'd love you to come to our Sunday night um, gathering that we do. We do, our communion is around, we sit around tables. Rather than sitting in shoulder to shoulder, we sit face to face. Face to face is better for human connection than shoulder to shoulder. Um, there's a loaf of bread, there's a bottle of wine at your table. And as we celebrate this meal together, we do so together. We do so in community with a discussion around the table. It is is it not super fun? It is so fun. I just love it, love it, love it. And I think it's the most 1 Corinthians 11 experience of communion that I've ever had. And so join us sometime on a Sunday night. It is a, it's a really sweet time. And come tonight if you want. Come check it out. Okay, Robin. One of the other things that the vertical and horizontal idea is forgiveness. Go ahead. Do you mind pulling that down so I can hear you a little bit? Great. The other things that I think is good with the vertical and horizontal is forgiveness. Where he said that, you know, if we don't forgive others, That's exactly right. Robin is making that connection that Jesus talks about how our forgiveness of each other is intrinsically related to our forgiveness, our experience of forgiveness from the Father. That gives us fits, right? We're like, what do you mean? Like, if I don't forgive them, you won't forgive me? I thought your forgiveness was based on Christ. How does this work out? And it's like weird and so it's so strange that we just kind of like bury it away. But you should instead look at that and be like, wow, there's really something to the connection between the vertical and the horizontal that perhaps we have under, we've under-experienced. That's my point, okay? So we got to be done. So thank you for coming. Um, watch for this. Read, as you read your Bible, just having your normal daily time in the Scriptures, just watch for how many times you see the shape of the cross. There's a vertical, there's a horizontal. These things go together. Cool? All right, see you next week. Mike, Mike.